1: Your top story, quite clearly, what happened with Saudi Arabia through the weekend. Saudi Aramco losing about 5.7 million barrels per day of output after 10 unmanned aerial vehicles struck the world's biggest crude processing facility as well as the kingdom's second largest oil field. I'm pleased to say that joining us on the phone, Harry Chilangarian joins us now, BNP Paribas Head of Commodity Market Strategy. Great to have you with us, Harry. Let me begin with the first and obvious question. How long will it take Aramco to bring down disrupted production back online. And as a consequence, how long can Saudi tap inventories without disrupting flows to customers?
2: I think that's a really difficult question. Uh, right now we don't have yet a status report in terms of damage, in particular at the Apkake refinery. As you know, Aramco announced on Sunday that it should produce such a report within 48 hours. So I guess we're going to have to wait and see uh, what the level of damage is. Uh, certainly Saudi Arabia, in terms of its commitments to its customers, will be able to keep supplying the market. It has storage at its main oil terminals like Ras has pre-positioned oil all across the world, from Europe to Asia. Uh, to, the, to the U.S. market. So I think that uh, they could easily go a month in terms of meeting their commitments. But really, the key issue is the, the level of damage at Upcake, because that processing facility is key to making marketable, commercial crude uh, for export to customers.
1: We'll talk about the geopolitics in just a moment, Harry. But the questions about the vulnerability of Aramco's infrastructure, I don't think are going anywhere, are they?
2: Well, this uh, recent attack uh, really is an escalation in terms of uh, the ability to reach uh, Saudi oil infrastructure by, in theory, uh, Houthi rebels backed by Iran. Uh, it's a 10-strong uh, drone uh Attack, uh, which uh, obviously has not yet happened before. The previous attacks by drones were, in, in comparison were relatively low level in terms of importance. So the question really here is whether or not uh, these Houthi rebels have the means to replicate such attacks uh, in the future. So, yes, we have a, an escalation in terms of uh, geopolitical risk uh, on oil supply, and the market is going to have to reprice that, that risk premium.
1: So, Harry, let's talk about the geopolitics. Over the weekend, Secretary Pompeo, very quick, on Twitter to come out and say that Tehran is behind nearly 100 attacks on Saudi Arabia while Rouhani and Zarif pretend to engage in diplomacy. Amid all the calls for de-escalation, Iran has now launched an unprecedented attack on the world's energy supply. There is no evidence the attacks came from Yemen. The president has been very restrained compared to Secretary Pompeo. The president saying the following, that Saudi Arabia's oil supply was attacked. There is no reason to believe that we know. There is a reason to believe that we know the culprit. Rather, are locked and loaded, dependent on verification, but are waiting to hear from the Kingdom as to who they believe was the cause of this attack and under what terms we would proceed. What do you make of the information vacuum over the weekend and into the beginning of the week, Harry?
2: Well, in terms of like identifying culprits, of course, uh, the U.S. was prompt to, to point a finger at, at Iran. Uh, but the president's communication has been, as you, as you just mentioned, extremely reserved, not mentioning any names, because in the end, uh, whatever conclusion they're going to reach, they're going to have to think of what would be called a proportionate or measured response to the attack uh, that that was committed. So I guess uh, again, being extremely cautious in terms of, of wording, and uh, however, you, you always have these differences in, in communication and. You've highlighted them between the White House being a little bit more cautious than the the, the U.S. Secretary of State. Now, in, in terms of the geopolitics, what's really interesting is the fact that this attack has really come shortly after the dismissal of John Bolton uh, as National Security Advisor, and that had lifted, I guess, some hopes that the U.S. may adopt a different strategy towards Iran, and even some speculating mm-hmm. that President Trumps and Rouhani could meet at the U.N. General Assembly, uh, albeit informal. Of course, the odds of any such meeting now have changed greatly right. with the, the recent attacks.
0: Harry, we are thrilled to start our hour with you, with BNP Paribas. You've been around since. You I'm were,
2: thrilled to be well, new with you, Tom.
0: Harry, you were with John Rockefeller, I think, in the Pennsylvania mountains there a few years back, looking for the first barrel of <laughs> oil in Pennsylvania. It's not well, your fa- <laughs> Well, it's not your father's oil crisis. Our dependency on oil's less, and as Greg Villier brilliantly says in his note this morning, the US is basically oil sufficient and with this attack China gets hammered. Do you agree with Mr. Villier?
2: Well, I would, I would say that the U.S. is not necessarily self-sufficient. It has a large surplus of light oil, and a lot of its refineries are dependent on a heavier quality of oil. So the U.S. is, rather than being energy uh, independent, uh, is it, basically becoming a very large energy exporter. So rivaling in production the likes of Saudi and Russia and emerging onto its own in terms of uh, a, uh, an exporting superpower. Now, in terms of implications, of course, uh, Saudi Arabia uh, supplies multiple countries, but the share of Saudi crude imports into the U.S. has steadily declined, and yes, China and a number of other Asian countries are highly dependent on Middle Eastern oil coming uh, through the vital passageway of the Strait of Hormuz. So I tend to say that, you know, uh, in terms of uh, relative impacts, of course, the the share of Saudi imports into the U.S. has lessened, uh, and however, uh, Asian countries themselves are Are far more exposed, yes.
1: Harry, some people might say we've been quite complacent about the geopolitical risk premium that should have been in the oil market. Some people might still be saying that this morning. We've had a rather big disruption to crude supplies, and that's an understatement. And yet crude is up by what? Eight, nine percent? In the grand scheme of things, Harry, I don't think that's the move a lot of people expected.
2: Well, I, I think, you know, when it, when it comes to the price reaction, we were going to get that knee-jerk reaction that you mentioned earlier, up 20% on the Asian Open, because there's very little liquidity and number of people were positioned to buy into, into crude. However, as we get more reports, including from the likes of the Wall Street Journal, indicating that a third of production could swiftly return, and that, that is possible yeah. because production has been shut down on a precautionary basis as well. And it really just comes back down to what is a damage assessment at Apcake, because if the damage is modest, then uh, we should see a swift return yeah. of Saudi supplies. Yeah.
0: Harry, great. We're all going to go back Thanks, and read Harry. Daniel a surprise here to get updated again. Mr. Chillingarian with BMP uh, Paribon has just given us great perspective over the uh, years John, as as we get to our esteemed guests, why don't you bring in uh, Michael Darda and Any number of ways to twist Yeah, just want to keep
1: everyone up to speed on the news flow. First of all, we've got some reporting here at Bloomberg. Sandy Aramco said to be less optimistic on speed of the output recovery. Crude with a little bit of a pop off the back of that. Now up 10%. Just that headline, Tom, goes to show you that the concern is a little bit beyond the speed of output recovery and towards the kind of geopolitical risk premium that we should now be baking in. But for me, the top news overnight, if we did not have these attacks on Aramco over the weekend, would be the Chinese economic data. Let's talk about that. It was dreadful. Industrial production came in at 4.4%. It is the weakest single month since 2002, and it really doesn't look good at all.
0: And in early September, Michael Dart of MCAM Partners wrote a a pristine paragraph that is a a claim on the Vixellian relative rate. Is China going to have a new lower terminal rate? Is the United States and the rest of the developed world have a new lower terminal rate?
3: Oh, Tom, I think there's no doubt about that. <clears throat> There's structural reasons that China's slowing down. Obviously, considering uh, slower and lower population growth, and then on top of it, these trade shocks are certainly leaving a mark. I mean, you know, the trade war is hurting the U.S., hurting U.S. manufacturing, but it's certainly yeah. damaged China more, and you can see that in the data released today.
0: I mean, I mean, John Joyce Chang last week of Morgan Stanley. Shocked with 4.5% as their vector, their target out there. No one believes Joyce Chang.
1: Premier Li Kashang was speaking to Russian media uh, overnight. Actually said it's going to be difficult to hit 6%. Just how difficult will it be, Mike, to hit 6%?
3: Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's a bit of an arbitrary number, but with data like what we're seeing today, it certainly raises the question. I also look at some of the monetary growth trends in China. I mean, if you look at M1 and M2 growth, these Milton Friedman indicators, they've been very, very weak. So maybe we shouldn't be completely startled that we're we're getting some fairly soft macro data out of China. The other thing is, you know, you've got the dollar levitating this year to, you know, to President Trump's chagrin, and that tends to to hurt emerging markets. It tends to be associated with emerging market equity and fixed income underperformance and slowing emerging market growth rates. And so, you know, we have that as part of the backdrop as well. All of this coming at a time where we've just had a massive backup
1: in Treasury yields. The 10-year yield last week up more than 30 (laughs) basis points. Now, I'm going to ask you the question I've been asking everybody and everyone wants the uh, the answer to this. I I wish we had a crystal ball to know what it would be, but just how are you framing this right now? A correction in the
3: context of a massive move through 2019 or the beginning of something new? I don't think this is the beginning of, of something new. I think what had happened is, and especially if you look at that, that last leg of the drop in the 10-year yield from 2%, it was really associated with the trade war taking a sudden an unexpected turn for the worse. And so I think a combination of things have been lifting yields. One is that there, maybe it's unfounded, but there is now a renewed sense of optimism that the trade war may ease, that President Trump uh, may be moving towards some kind of a deal, even if it's a minor deal. There were also fears of a hard Brexit. Those fears have receded to some degree. Uh, and the macro data in the U.S., while it's certainly not super robust, we're not falling off a cliff. And you saw that with retail sales okay. this past week.
0: Everybody that follows you, Michael Darter, they're going, great. Why are we near record highs on equities? I mean, how do you just flip the reciprocal on uh, the new terminal value and it gives you higher equity valuations? I don't buy it. What, what's your conviction in the stock market?
3: Well, I would you know take a more cautious stance on, on equities here just given the fact that we're pretty close to the highs of the year and i still think there are business cycle risks out there so even with this reversal in yields that john mentioned you still have the treasury yield curve inverted this will be the 17th consecutive week you know, if if today's action continues throughout the balance of the week, where the ten-year yield has been, you know, has has been inverted vis-a-vis the three-month T bill, so ten-year yields being below T bills in a sustained fashion, you know, has preceded every recession going back to the nineteen sixties, and so I do think there's certainly call for some caution here on risk assets. What do you make of the argument, Mike? Just to round things up that maybe we got too pessimistic, that
1: if you look at the global surprise indicators, finally we turned positive in the last couple of weeks, that the estimates, the forecast just got too pessimistic versus the reality of the actual data that was coming through?
3: Yeah, I think that's that's a totally reasonable argument. Um, I mentioned that big fall off from the 2% level and the 10-year Treasury yield seemed to be associated with a lot of pessimism centered around the trade war and, and some of these other um, global factors that enforces that have been creating a you uh-huh. know falling confidence. So if those reverse you'd expect the bond yields to, to reverse. The question is do we keep running up from here in yields? And I'd be a little more skeptical or cautious on that view.
0: Well Michael Darter, thank you so much. Greatly appreciate it. MK and Partners, too much news flow, too little time to talk. We'll get a a longer discussion here with Mr. Good Darter. to see you. As Mike. soon as we see you uh can Oxford Institute for Energy. It is a spectacular 20 pages of dense, dense, dense microeconomics on how we come up with an oil price. That leads us to Ted Alden. Edward Alden's failure to adjust how Americans got left behind was a superb book a number of years ago and still highly valuable to anybody interested in our trade world. And Ted Alden joins us from our Washington studios uh, right now. Ted, I want to rip up the script here and talk not about the gloom of our failure to adjust, but we adjusted to oil. We had oil shock one, oil shock two, and somehow America came out of this more independent on hydrocarbons. How do we do it?
4: Well, I may not be the best guy to ask that on, on the energy front, but you're I all think, we got right now. <laughs> no, no, fair enough, fair enough. But I, I think there is a general point, which is one of the great strengths of the American economy over many decades now is that it is highly adaptable. I mean, we adapted to the oil shocks of the 70s. I mean, I was pretty young then, but I remember quite well. I remember the gas lineups and it was a difficult transition, but we made it, we adjusted to the Japanese competition of the 1980s and the 1990s. We are a highly flexible, adaptable economy, but it it takes effort, it actually takes both uh, business and government and and some of the initiatives I think we're going to need to adapt to this generation of shocks we're not seeing come out, partly because of the dysfunction of our political system right What's now.
1: What's been amazing is the productivity story as well for U.S. crude. It's been a technology story as much the as Technology, ab- 100% yeah. agree. it been absolutely incredible, Ted. A- and now there's a lot of people trying to figure out, every time we have some kind of oil shock one way or the other, trying to figure out on net whether Higher or lower oil prices is what's best for the American economy. Ted, how on earth do you make that calculation?
4: Well, I mean, I, th- I think if you look at the growth numbers, it's it's pretty clear that higher oil prices uh, are harmful to the U.S. economy. Particularly with such a large oil producer now that on net it's a good thing. But your point is it's not as straightforward a calculation as it was, say, in the 70s and 80s. Then, you know, high oil prices across the board we're bad. Now, because we're such a large producer, it hurts the U.S. economy less than it does other competitor economies. So it's a more difficult calculation. Absolutely, no
1: question. So what does it mean for policy going forward? Elizabeth Warren, Senator Warren coming out quite recently on her Twitter account saying she would ban fracking everywhere, Ted. I mean, on the surface of things, it's a rather large statement and no one has any idea whether she can actually do that. But what do you make of those kind of statements from the Democrats?
4: Well, it's, I mean, electorally, that's a challenging one, right? I mean, fracking has helped a lot of economies, uh, local economies around the country. There are obviously significant environmental issues uh, again I think that the history tends to suggest that those can be managed in a way that you don't have a complete trade-off between growth and environmental protection I worry and you know again as Tom knows getting a little out of my areas here but but you know one of the things that happened in the 70s with the creation of EPA and other things was that that you had a set of regulations go into place that allowed growth to proceed but also focused on environmental protection yeah. where it really mattered I worry about the dismantling of those things going on in the current administration. I don't think it's an either or. I think you can protect yeah. the environment and do the things that are necessary for strong growth.
0: We welcome all of you on Bloomberg Surveillance. Edward Alden with us. He's with the Council on Foreign Relations, his book, Failure to Adjust. John Farrow and I are adjusting to more data checks, futures at negative 11. Oil 72 ish. The high was 71.95, right down to $68 a barrel on Brent. And then, John, we got down near 65 ish. And we've come back a little bit in the last hour, a little bit of a lift here off. The president
1: with a couple of tweets that I'd like to bring to you all, just briefly.
0: Right now, like recently? Right here,
1: right now. Producer prices in China shrank most in three years due to China's big devaluation of their currency, coupled with monetary stimulus. Federal Reserve not watching. Will the Fed ever get into the game? The dollar's strongest ever, really bad for exports. No inflation, highest interest rates. The United States, because of the Fed, is paying a much higher rate than other competing countries. They can't believe how lucky they are that Jay Powell and the Fed don't have a clue. And now on top of it all, they all hit. Big interest rate drop, stimulus.
0: Is he listening to us because he knows we have Ted Alden
1: So Ted, just talk to me about this because many people find it hard to reconcile the call for stimulus with the projection of the idea from this administration that this economy is totally fine and rock solid.
4: Well, I I mean, has there ever been a president who didn't want lower interest rates going into his re-election year. So most of them have not been quite so public about bashing the Federal Reserve. But but uh, this is something that presidents always want. I mean, the, the economy can never be too strong going into an election yeah. year. Trump's clearly not worried about overheating. And to be fair, there aren't a lot of signs of, yeah. of overheating. Problem is the Fed doesn't have a lot more ammunition, right? I mean, it could cut yeah. rates a little faster, but but it's not a whole lot it can do. To, to further boost the economy right. going into 2020. It's,
0: it's Microeconomics Monday. We've been doing that with oil, and, and it's been a joy. Let's do it with Ted Alden now in trade. Part of this is the substitution effect. If we, as the president clearly in this tweet, suggest it's us and China, Ted Alden's going to say, no, it's not, and that there are indirect and direct leakages where the trade slips out of China to a dynamic with other countries how evident how pronounced is that substitution effect
4: well you're seeing it certainly in in asia particularly with the growth of exports from vietnam and and you're seeing this administration now target vietnam and say oh you know vietnam's trade surplus with the united states is soaring that's a problem we need to do something about. So so that's been the most significant kind of leakage we've seen already. But it will certainly grow if the if the trade war continues. In a lot of ways we're still in the fairly early stages here, because what's at stake is long-term investment decisions by companies. Are they confident that they can continue to export from China to the United States? If the answer is yes, they probably stay put. If not, they have to think about either relocating existing investments or where they make future investments. So so there's a very long tail on this.
0: Yeah, it's going to be interesting. I mean, within that long tail are just simple, immediate discussions of October. What's on Ted Alden's date calendar for October to indicate how this trade war unravels or how this trade war moves forward.
4: Well, you know, I always hesitate to say that, you know, the next round of negotiations is the critical one. But I I think the one coming up uh, between the United States and China in October is critical. The last couple of efforts to restart the talks since they broke down in May have been catastrophic failures that have resulted in further escalation. I think if there's going to be any sort of reasonably durable truce, it's going to have to happen at this October meeting and then maybe be cemented when Trump and Chinese President Xi Jinping meet at at APEC in Chile in November. So I think – I mean clearly the markets are going to be watching this meeting very closely. They are hopeful now. Because of the gestures on each side, the Chinese deciding not to further raise tariffs on yeah. agricultural imports, the uh, Trump delaying the, the the next round of U.S. tariff so uh, It's a big meeting, clearly.
0: Ted Alden, thank you so much. Great. Thanks, to Ted. You. Uh,
1: It's slipping under the radar, some really weak Chinese economic data, industrial output rising just 4.4% from a year earlier in August. A lot of people might say that sounds good, for the rest of the world it might be, but for China it's not. It's the lowest for a single month since 2002. Retail sales also coming in below expectations. We've got a fantastic guest to talk to us about it, Henrietta Treys, Veda Pandas, Director of Economic Policy Research. Henrietta, just your early reaction to that economic data from China overnight.
5: Thanks for having me. Yeah, I mean, as you mentioned, it's the worst number since 2002. So obviously China's facing some pressure, and I think the Trump administration is watching that very closely. Uh, As we discussed earlier, um, you know, the administration feels very confident that this trade war is having a much more profound impact on China's economy and that President Xi can't sustain this the way that President Trump can. Do you you agree with that assessment? Do you agree with that? Uh, I do not. And I, more importantly, don't see any of the indicators coming out of China in terms of the verbiage that either President Xi or any of his folks uh, downstream are using against the United States. They're saying, look, this is what happens when foreign aggressors come in. You need the Communist Party to lead the country. We can fix it. We're the ones who will stand up to the United States. And the economic nationalism that you see, um, you know, most clearly identified in the Japan versus South Korea fights is something that I think they're stoking. Hey, let's get nationalistic, support Chinese companies, don't buy a Ford, uh, buy a Chinese manufacturing car. And I think that's the direction they're going, which is not what the Trump administration is trying to telegraph to folks here.
1: So Henrietta, when you look at the economy, just away from the politics, what underpins a more constructive view of the Chinese economy right now?
5: I think with the Chinese economy, you have one thing that's most important, and that's longevity. And that is a sense that they don't need to respond to, you know, the Iowa caucuses or a November 2020 election. They can plan for 2025. They can plan for 2050. And if you look at how much money they're spending on R&D versus the United States, it's at least more than half. Uh, I, think, I think it's double, actually, um, if not triple. So they're focusing on, you know, what's happening next. This is a near-term blip. This mm-hmm. won't always be with us. We have manufacturing. Now let's work on innovation. You know, they're already beyond this.
0: Where is the Navarro theme in the White House? I mean, if you, you beautifully frame out the dynamics of China versus us, and we've had the reports of sub-6% GDP, et cetera. How does Dr. Navarro fold into this in influencing a president who has his own policy, his discrete policy on trade?
5: You know, that's an interesting question, and I, I really wish there was less of a focus on Peter Navarro as this sort of outlier in the administration. USTR Lifehizer has created the nuclear bomb of these tariffs. He went through the Section 301 investigation for a year and a half before he published it. He gave us all the tools of this trade. Um, President Trump has very long held that China is an aggressor and been stealing our IP, and I think that there are folks Way downstream from that, at the State Department, at Defense, Um, and you can see that in the CFIUS work and Treasury stuff that they're working on. The State Department just last week rolled out a draft set of guidance for anyone using anything that has any kind of surveillance capabilities, whether intentional or not. If you can have an audio or a visual surveillance of any uh, American in anything that you're developing, they want to crack down on and make sure it doesn't get exported. So I think it's a a misread to think that this is right. just one guy in the ship. It's John wants deep.
0: John wants to jump in here, but to be clear here, you're saying Mr. Lighthizer and Dr. Navarro are much closer together than we think.
5: Uh, yes, absolutely, and a whole bunch of other folks at the administration. I mean, you can't you can't say that only one guy believes this is true if the other guy is the one who's creating the, the legal framework for putting the tires on to to substantiate the claim that you know Mr. Navarro is making.
1: And to some degree, that very same mistake was made last week when John Bolton left the White House and many people assumed that maybe we'd have a change of direction with Iran. And then you saw how quickly Secretary Pompeo was to tweet over the weekend and blame the Iranians for what happened. Henrietta, what is your view on what happens next just with regards to Iran going into the UN General Assembly over the next week?
5: Um, Well, there's definitely a lot of data gathering going on right now of I assume that, you know, the big eight on Capitol Hill have been briefed. There'll be armed services and foreign affairs briefings. Um, Saudi Arabia will have to clarify exactly how much has been clamped down on. Um, The Iranian meeting uh, seems pretty clear from Iran's side anyway is not going to happen with President Trump. So I guess we sort of have to take his word for that at the moment. But a week, as you all know, in D.C. is a very long time, and they don't really even get to work till tomorrow. So I expect there to be quite a few changes, but I am watching closely to see how China and Iran interact whether China um, has any kind of data points about oil shipments from Iran, um, whether the United States is in, interested in pursuing secondary sanctions. I think there's a lot of potential. I'm not necessarily guarantee a potential for the Iranian situation to bleed into the China
1: talks. Well, Henrietta, let's talk about that. Just how do these two very different situations cross over?
5: Well, because China has had, along with Russia and Iran, a much closer working relationship than the United States would like. And so when we talk with counsel and say, you know, what are the issues we have with China? Of course, we can go through IP and forced tech transfer and all that. But there's also the global presence component about whether or not the American sanctions are really working to the greatest extent possible or whether some right. other nation are trying to interact with them. So it's, it's not a direct link, but it is wow. a mistake to think that the U.S.-China tensions are only about... Um, manufacturing. Right. They're about a whole bunch of humanitarian components as well, of which this could ultimately be one. one f- and hearing about secondary sanctions comes up every once yeah. in a while with staff.
0: Henry, I had one final question. This has been great. I just tweeted out in this. This has been wonderful. Henry de Tres, is Congress locked and loaded? I mean, the president is locked and loaded. Is Congress locked and loaded?
5: You know, that's an interesting question. A client of mine reached out last night, and they were saying, you know, what does this mean for foreign arms sales? And we've seen yeah, that the Trump you. administration – of Yes, thank you. Continue. Yeah, yeah. so we've seen that the Trump administration has specifically been really uh, excited to talk about arms sales, as we saw with Saudi Arabia, just the last few months. You know, the president can put a price tag on it. He can say, you know, we're reducing the trade deficit or whatever macroeconomic indicators yeah, you want to yeah, look yeah. at. Um, And senators have been very dismissive of that. And I think that this is a situation that is definitely short of locked and loaded, but could be an important convincer, particularly if there's sustained disruptions. Saudi Arabia says, yo, this is really bad. We have a real problem. It's going to take us months to get this supply back online. um, That could be a game changer. Mm -hmm. This is big enough to create a locked and loaded scenario, but that does not exist at this time.
0: Thank you so much. Henry Trey is just brilliant there in China.
6: So you get a sense of kind of what's going on in the world of currencies. We welcome Mark Chandler, Banach-Bachburn uh, Global Forex Chief Market Strategist, joins us here in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio. Mark, thanks so much for being here. So again, you wake up this morning, you come in on a Monday morning, and you see oil up double digits across uh, uh, the world in terms of WTI and Brent. How does that impact kind of how you go about your week here, thinking about currencies and talking to your clients and kind of how to be positioned?
7: Sure. You know, in the foreign exchange market, our week really begins Sunday afternoons. Right. So we saw what was happening as the Asian markets opened up. And I think that's one of the takeaways is that typically we get a very exaggerated response reaction in Asia where you still have relatively thin markets. I think that's when we saw the oil make the extreme and where dollar yen made an extreme. And I think the initial knee-jerk reaction to FX market was to, excuse me, was to uh, buy the yen as sort of a safe haven play and buy the currencies that are often seen as sensitive to oil. So that would be the Canadian dollar, uh, Norway, as well as the Russian ruble. And that's what we've basically seen.
6: Are the markets telling you, when you you look at those currencies, that this might be uh, a short-term issue or there might be a little bit more going on here in terms of supply of oil?
7: Yeah, so in the long run, you know, when I really look at currencies, I tend to focus much more on the capital flows than the flow of goods. And oil is just a flow of the goods. Okay. This is what I really like about the FX market. Five trillion dollars a day turnover. That means in th- by Thursday in a week, four days, we, need enough- we see enough turnover to cover world trade for a year. So typically, I'll focus on monetary policy and those kind of things that attract capital rather than the goods trade. You're...
0: Excuse me. I'm, I'm new. The blue button is over there. The Anthony from Sparta is saying, Tom, the blue right. button. Try to get to it before you open said mouth. I had to take the cork out of my mouth. Your wonderful book, Political Economy of Tomorrow, about the astrology of all this, one of the foundation astronomical realities. It's like Copernicus is the dollars linked to oil. Really? Is that still true?
7: Yeah, so I never was a real big believer in this petrodollar type of scenario. I, I say, yeah, maybe in the 1970s it might have been an important part. But the thing that keeps the dollar as the key asset, key reserve currency, key invoicing currency, is the depth and breadth of our treasury market. And that is bigger, deeper, more transparent than any other bond market. And that's what I think really is behind the dollar more than oil.
0: Is there a dollar shortage out there? Explain to our audience when they see headlines in the the blogosphere, we're running out of dollars, dollars are short abroad. We'll translate that.
7: Yeah, so this is partly original sin in the the markets. That is when countries borrow currencies that aren't their own. They don't have the printing press for. So whether it's Chinese companies borrowing dollars, emerging markets borrowing dollars, because it's cheaper to borrow dollars often than borrow their own currency. That because of all this massive borrowing of dollars in the last several years, people think there's a shortage. That is, those who borrow dollars have to pay them back. And so they think that there's a big shortage of dollars because these people have to pay them back. But I look at is some of the corporate some of the corporates as well as some of the country balance sheets. A country like Saudi Arabia, for example, has issued dollar bonds. Well, they have dollar receivables. Same thing with Brazil, same thing with Mexico. So I'd be looking, when I, I think about this dollar shortage issue, I want to I drill down and look at where is the real imbalance? Who's got the natural
6: dollars mm-hmm. to pay back these loans? Well, we're looking at the DXY, the, the dollar index at 98.52 today, up another third of 1%. Is there a bear case out there for the U.S. dollar anywhere? <laughs> yeah, so I'm I'm really in the case in the camp that says that the dollar
7: has been in a 10-year bull market and that bull market is nearly over. And maybe we make a marginal new high, maybe we don't. But it's, the process of a low or an extreme in the markets tends to be a process. And I think that process is already underway in the U.S. Just think about what's going to happen later this week. The Federal Reserve is most likely going to cut 25 basis points. The ECB cut 10 basis points last week and maybe cut 10 basis points before the end of the year. Meanwhile, we'll probably cut at least 50 before the end of the year while they cut 20. And so I'm looking at interest rate differentials moving against the U.S. over time.
0: And this is really important. This is absolute analysis versus what, you know, your acclaimed career, Mark Chandler, which is a study of relative analysis. What is the relative shock of this oil debacle for Saudi Arabia? versus the the shock that there would have been in in OPEC 1 or OPEC 2, 1986, or on from there. I mean, it's a different calculus now, isn't it?
7: I agree fully, and I think that one of the biggest changes in the last several years has been the U.S. has emerged as a premier exporter of oil. And I think that was in June that the U.S. surpassed Saudi Arabia in their exports. Saudi's caught up in, uh, in uh, July, August. But we're going yeah. to surpass them again. I think that the U.S. is not energy sufficient. We, just, we still are importing about 6 million barrels a day. But this has been a big change in the, the role of the dollar, the role um, of the oil markets in general.
0: Uh, we got to leave it there. Mark Chandler, thank you so much for the Bannockburn uh, this morning. Greatly appreciate it. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast